I've heard, uh, I guess I've read, uh, longtime pastor Eugene Peterson said something like the job of a pastor, you know, people think a pastor's job is a lot of things, uh, but he said before anything else, the job of a pastor is to look at a church and to tell them what God is doing in their midst. And it's a joy as, as a pastor of Eastwood to look and say that God is at work in the life of our children's ministry. And God is at work in the life of our youth ministry. And God is at work in the life of, of those youth that have graduated and moved into worship ministry and, and are serving in our church. Uh, to see that and recognize that and, and, and rejoice in that. Because uh, I see that in our midst and that's exciting to me. Uh, and to know that, you know, it's nothing that just any one person, including myself, did. It's something that as a church, God did through numerous people as we've raised these folks up. Uh, so celebrate with me today that. That's exciting for me. Uh, I hope it is for you as well. This morning, I'm going to talk about faithfulness. So we continue our series in 1 Samuel. I'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 14, if you want to find that spot in your Bible. Uh, and as I think about, about faithfulness... Um, I'm, I'm a dog person, so I have a dog, and I think about the faithfulness of, of dogs. If you like dogs, uh, you can relate to that. And there's a story in, in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, that began in 1850 when a guy named John Gray came to the city to be a gardener. And he couldn't find any work as a gardener, so he got a job uh, working for the police department as sort of night security for the city. And he had a small Sky Terrier named Bobby, and he took Bobby with him on his rounds. And this was a small town, so he just kind of became known as the night watchman of the town, and Bobby, his little Sky Terrier, would follow him around. And he just became a permanent sort of fixture of the city, and people would tell him hello, and they'd give little Bobby a, a biscuit or something to eat, and they'd pet him. Well, in 1858, uh, John, John contracted tuberculosis, and he died. And he was buried in a place called Greyfriars Kirkyard. It's a cemetery on the southern edge of the town. Well, Bobby the Sky Terrier uh, was so distraught at his master's death that he would not leave the grave. And, uh, so the cemetery keeper thought that he'd, he'd give him you know, a couple weeks and he'd move on and he'd try to find him a home. But he wouldn't. He just was a permanent fixture in his grave. And, and people would continue to walk by the guy's grave and feed the little dog and... So the cemetery keeper decided he would just build him a little house. And so he built him a house next to his, his master's grave. And he lived there, and no one really owned it, but people just sort of took care of the little dog. Well, a few years later, the city passed an ordinance that all dogs that were not registered and didn't have an owner would, would be picked up. They were trying to take care of strays. And, and so this, this bothered so many people because they knew the dog and he was a permanent fixture of the city. And so the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, kind of like what we would consider a mayor, himself bought a license for Bobby. And the little dog continued to live out his days. And, and the dog lived to be 16 years old living in that little place uh, right next to his master's grave until his death. Uh, and if you go there today, you'll see a little statue, a little sculpture, a memory of, of Bobby. And uh, inscribed on it, it says, Gray Friars Bobby died the 14th of January, 1872, aged 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. Now, think about stories like that and the faithfulness that it demonstrates. Uh, and I feel a little sad because, uh, you know, I had a dog growing up that was, was a, just a mutt, nothing special, but, but he exhibited those faithful qualities. And so... When Michelle and I got a dog, I thought that 
that's what I was in for. You know, we, we got a dog at the, at the uh, Waco Humane Society before we had any kids. And I thought, I'm going to teach this dog to be faithful and obedient. And I'll be his master. You know, I had all these grand ideas. And so uh, I had some time. It was during the summer. I, wasn't take, I, I was not taking a lot of classes at the time. I was in school, and so I had some time to work with him, and, and I taught him all these amazing tricks, how to sit, how to shake your hand, how to lay down, how to, how to crawl. Uh, if he really wants a treat, he can, he can wave his paw at you. He can chase his tail, and he does all these things sh short of you know, serving you coffee. That's pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, but the thing is, I thought I, as I was teaching him to do all these things using these little milk bones, that I was teaching the dog to be obedient. And, and faithful and, and to listen to me all the time. And maybe with some dogs it would have worked out that way or maybe I just did something wrong. Uh, but what I ended up doing was creating this dog that will do just about anything if you have a treat in your hand. And if you don't, he didn't care about anything except himself. It's kind of like Scooby-Doo. You know, Scooby-Doo would do anything for a Scooby snack, but <laughs> don't count on him when the bad guy comes. You're out of luck. That's pretty much how my dog is. And I don't think I have to push that illustration very far for us to recognize the kind of faithfulness that God desires from us. And we read, uh, our scripture reading was, was in the gospel about the rich man that came to Jesus. You know, we, we have Jesus' words where he tells his disciples, uh, you know, to follow me. You, you take up your cross and, and you follow me and you give your life to me. And, and it's not one of those things that you come to me just, just because you want something or because of what I can do for you. Uh, faithfulness is, is fully giving of yourself over to another. And of course, when it comes to God, sometimes we don't, uh, we don't go to that extreme. We, we recognize that we need God, we want God, and we want God to do this and that in our life. Uh, but we don't always have the faithfulness that Jesus commanded of his disciples. Now, last week, our text revealed this truth about King Saul, that he was, he was not going to get what he wanted. He was not going to be a king whose, whose lineage God would, bl would bless to, to set Israel apart and, and be the ruling line throughout God's people. That privilege would fall to someone else. Someone, the Bible says, after God's own heart. And if you know the story, we know who that is. We know that that's King David. And we also know that for all of, of Saul's flaws, David had his share of flaws, didn't he? So we can breathe a sigh of relief and know that, well, whatever faithfulness is, it's not perfection. That's, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what God demands. But faithfulness is something that the Bible sets apart as important. And, and immediately in our text that I'll read in just a moment, uh, we kind of have two foils that set apart one another between Saul and his son, Jonathan. And both of them are imperfect. Both of them make mistakes. But one of them is focused on being faithful to God to the best of his ability. And the other is pretty much focused on himself. Listen to our text in 1 Samuel. I'll begin chapter 14, verse 31. That day after the, the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder. And taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that, is, that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. 
roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you, bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let us, leave, let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them, in Israel, give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, come here, all you are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, you stand over here. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Huron. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thuman. Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about the great deliverance in Israel never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. I'll give you a little background information. We didn't read the whole text because it's really long. But before what we just read, Saul and Jonathan are both engaged in battle. Saul and Gibeah and Jonathan is sort of on this covert mission against the Philistines. And he's in their, he's in their camp. And, and what we can only assume is an attempt at motivating his men. Saul makes this statement back in 14, chapter 14, verse 24. He says, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Well, meanwhile, <clears throat> Jonathan's unaware of that. He's exhausted. And what we just read, he, he ate some honey. And, and, and there were some others that were influenced to eat as well. And to go against the king's command. And our text ultimately bears out that in spite of these mistakes, Jonathan's life was spared. He, he was guided by being faithful to, to what he thought was the right thing to do. Being faithful to God, being faithful to his dad the best way that he could. And Saul has a different agenda. So we look at our relationship with God. When our relationship with God is, is really defined and it's motivated by Faithfulness, Not perfectly, but to the best that we understand, the best that we understand God, as Scripture reveals, uh, sin doesn't or sin shouldn't dictate how we relate to God, as it did for Saul. Last weekend, Emily and Luke had their cousin Jacqueline over, and uh, they, had, they, they slept over a couple nights. And, and Jacqueline is a year younger than Luke, uh, but, but she is uh, kind of a, a bossy Female, and so she thinks she thinks she's as old as Emily. You know, they they're really the two kindred spirits, and Luke is just kind of the in the middle. And so they came over and they played it. And for the longest time, they played together, and and you know, it was pretty quiet and calm, and things would go well. But but as she's getting a little older, and Luke's getting a little older, 
uh, th they're starting to sort of, you know, have their own little mind and decide to do their own little things. And, uh, you know, they would watch a TV show or they would play with toys and th there starts to be disagreements. One wants to watch this, another one wants to watch that. One of them wants to play with this, another one wants to play with that. And you ever notice this happened several times uh, when, when kids get really mad and, and they're not getting their way, one of them will just decide, oh, I'm just done. And they will shut down and they'll go to the other room and they'll pout. You ever seen that? You ever seen an adult do that? <laughs> well, why do kids, why do adults pout? It's because they're saying that I'm so upset that things are not going the way that I want them to go that I'm just going to block any attempt at anyone having any relating to me at all. That's what that is. There's just, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not even going to relate to anyone. They just put the wall up there. That's what they do. And of course, as adults, we know that's, that's not the mature thing to do, and it's not really helpful. When we look at what happens with Israel, and since they're not pouting, but, but they're, they're making, in a way, they're making the sense that they are, they are relating to God in a way that God says, you're, this is not what you're supposed to do. Uh, and, and of course, it was an accident. They, they plundered all these, these animals. They had all these animals they killed from the Philistines. And they're starving because Saul said, until you defeat the Philistines, you're not going to eat anything. And so they're starving and they, they eat all this meat and they slaughter all these animals. And they eat the meat together with blood. Verse 33, Saul accuses them, you have broken faith. And the root for that really is used in Isaiah chapter 24 to speak of betrayal. He's saying you've betrayed the covenant that you have with God. God says you relate to me this certain way and you've, you've not done that. You've, you've really put up a wall with your relationship with God. That seems kind of like a small thing to us, but Israel understood themselves as being people that everything they did was, was relating to God somehow. From the most, you know, great grandeur expressions of worship to just mundane things like eating. And so you have to wonder, was it lost on Saul that this was a direct result of his command for them not to eat anything? They, they broke faith. I mean, it's fair to say that that happened. But he seems to be lost on the idea that he had a direct role in that. And so he's trying to fix the problem. And he has this stone rolled over. And, and they've already eaten. And it's, it's really redundant. And I would say even kind of mean to the people. And then he says, now slaughter your own animals and do it correctly. And so they do. And it's interesting that after they, he does that, he has this, uh, you know, he sets up, sets up an altar to God. Verse 35 tells us this was, this was the first time that he'd done that. And it seems that his motivation is to fix the problem that he caused and doesn't really own up to. You know, a lot of what Saul understood that he was doing was just carrying out duties as a king. Many of you are here... Because you were taught as, as maybe even a kid going to vacation Bible school that it's your duty to go to church. And, and gosh, that's a good thing that you get that habit instilled into you. Some of you, as we have uh, been reading through the Bible to go as a church, you, you decided to do that because you thought, well, I kind of feel like that's my duty. I feel like I should do that as a Christian. I don't read the Bible enough. And that's not a bad thing. That's, that's good to recognize that God can use different spiritual duties or practices to bring us closer to Him. Maybe, maybe some of you started coming here because you have a child or a teenager. You had a teenager that, that started coming and you thought, well, 
They're going to church. Maybe I should go. And, and so you sort of did that because you thought, well, I feel like that's my duty. If my kid's going to go to church, I should support them and, and encourage them with that. And that's not a bad thing. But in and of itself, none of those things are necessarily good things. If they're not connected with a relationship with God, if we're just doing the motions, if we're just trying to say, well, I'm just going to do this to make sure everything's all right with God. But there's no relationship there. There's a wall there. It's not really faithfulness. So faithfulness, faithfulness can't, we can't have something that's blocking that relationship with God in order to be faithful, whether it's sin or something else. And when our relationship is guided by faithfulness, we consider what God desires as a priority. It's not just about what we want or desire. We consider what God desires as a priority. David Platt wrote this book called Radical, and it, it just sold, sold a lot, uh, a lot of copies. And he tells this story uh, about where, where he's, he's traveled all over the world. He was the president, uh, president is the right word? I don't know. He was the head of the International, International Mission Board for a little while, for a few years. Uh, and he tells this story when he was in Indonesia, sitting outside a Buddhist temple. And he's having a conversation with, with a Buddhist and, and a Muslim. And these were probably, it was probably a unique Muslim, but, but you know, they were just talking about faith and, and the differences and and as they're having a conversation, it, it gets to be uh, David's turn to respond to each of these two. And he says, it seems like to me, from what you're describing about how you understand God, is that both of you are saying that your concept of God is like this and your concept of God is like that. But, but if you would picture God on a mountain, both of you are trying to get to him, but you're getting to him in different ways. And he said, is that correct? And they said, yeah, that's exactly right. We, we understand how we get to God up on the mountain in different ways. And he said, well, imagine for a moment that if God, instead of you having to go up and get to him, if God was the one that came down to you, would, would that interest you? And their face said, yes, that would interest us very much. And he said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Because that's what... Jesus did. And from the perspective of all the other major religions, the idea that God would desire us so much that he would make possible for us to have a relationship with him. I mean, for us, we get that. But it's radical to those who don't have that faith. And, and so rather than going to the extreme that, that some folks in Eastern religions do and, and say, well, we all have different ways of getting to God, but it's, it's the kind of, you know, we're all going to the same place. We go to the other end and we say sometimes, well, we recognize all that God has done for us in Christ. We know that he's made it possible for us to have a relationship with him. And, you know, we don't really have to do anything. God's done it all. What else is there for us to do? But that's not biblical Christianity. God came to us out of his desire for us to know us and have a relationship with us. And faithfulness to that relationship means that we desire what he desires. We make it a priority to, to care about the things that he cares about. And that's been a struggle. That's always been a struggle throughout the Bible. It was a struggle for Adam and Eve. It was a struggle for Israel. It's a struggle for Saul. Whether that's a contrast to what we want or popular convention uh, or just whatever it might be. So Saul struggled with that. And he makes the decision, or he's about to make the decision, to engage in battle with the Philistines. And in, in verse 36, he, he's, he says, I'm going to go down. He, tell, he tells his people, go down, pursue the Philistines by night, and plunder them till dawn, not leaving any one of them alive. 
Basically do a sneak attack. Sounds good, right? That was popular military convention of his day. If, if you were outnumbered, well, you got to be sneaky. you got to do what you got to do to survive. And, I mean, that makes sense today, you know. It's, it's just you do what you got to do. But it never dawns on him because that is such conventional thought in his time. Never, never dawns on him to stop. So what, what, what does God think about that? And so it takes a priest to say, well, wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's ask God. So he does, and in verse 36 it says, God did not answer him that day. Well, that would take me off, wouldn't it? Here we are, I'm ready, I want to get it done, God. You know, everything is set up, I've got the plan, it's going to work. Just wait on the cut God didn't answer him that day. And he immediately assumes it's because of someone else's problem, someone else's sin. But if you keep reading, and, and Samuel... You'll see that this becomes a pattern with Saul. God has withdrawn his hand from him. And in chapter 28, he even admits, God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. And the sad part of that is because it's due to his own disobedience that we talked about last week. And recently, a pastor friend of mine was preparing another sermon. I don't think it was related to this. But he, he asked me, how he texted me, how would you define God's goodness? So I thought about it, and I said, the only way I, would, I can even frame that and who I know God to be is through what he did on the cross. Because it's through the cross that God's goodness can be my goodness. It's through the cross that we're not only forgiven, but we're able to live a life that is not influenced by sin. That's the only way you can do that. And that's God made his goodness available to us. And that means that church, or it should mean, Church is not just a hobby. It's not just a place that we go to, to to socialize. It's not just something that we think, oh, well, I guess I guess I'll go to church today, you know. It means that we don't rely on uh, convention or, or efficiency or popularity in making decisions. It means that we open ourselves through God and through prayer and, and through reflection to not just have a relationship with God, but to care about the things that he cares about. And when our relationship with God is guided by that kind of faithfulness, we guard ourselves from making the kind of decision that Saul always made. We, we guard ourselves from making decisions apart from God. Regrettable decisions, I would say. I'm going to give you full disclosure. Michelle and I hate making decisions. Anybody else? The worst decision in the world to make is where you want to eat when you're on a road trip, right? But we just don't like any decisions. Remember, remember that the movie, uh, the Jungle Book, with with was it buzzards in the trees, you know? And one of them turns to the other, so what you want to do? And the other one says, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? That's kind of how we are. Well, what do you want to do? I don't know. You want to watch something on TV? I want to read. And we'll just go back and forth like that until finally one of us makes a decision. And, and it's hard sometimes. And and we recognize as Christians that you know there are some decisions. I don't know if God really cares too much if I watch TV or if I read a book. Maybe it depends on what I'm watching or reading, right? But there are some decisions that are just kind of mundane and, and God doesn't care one way or the other probably. But there are, you know, if there are some decisions that God actually cares about, we better get those decisions right. And, and, and it's hard sometimes. We strive to be faithful to include God in those things and to think about what He desires and, and appropriate that to our lives. There was a, a priest, an early Christian priest named Ignatius. 
And, and he wrote about this idea of feelings of what he called consolation and desolation. And those are big words. But what he was talking about was that, you know, if, if you're struggling to make a decision, you take time and you think about it. You ask God to guide your feelings and you just notice how this decision kind of makes you feel. Does it make you feel close to God? Does it make you feel away from God? Does it make you feel good in a way that God would think is good? Or good in a way that you think is good? And maybe, maybe how I'd appropriate that today is, is maybe you just take, if you're struggling to make this decision and you want to know, is this something God wants or doesn't or does he care? Is you take that and you just sort of live with it for a while. You know what I mean? You think, well, well, if I make this decision this way, I'm just going to think like in my head like I've made it. I'm going to live with it for a week. And I'm going to ask God to guide my thoughts and to guide my feelings regarding it. And you can do the same way making a different decision or the opposite of that decision. And, you know, that's not a cure-all. It's not going to lead you to, to a flawless decision necessarily. But I think we do that unknowingly sometimes. You ever heard someone say something like, well, God has given me a peace about this or that. Well, how do you do that? Why do you do that? Well, probably because you gave him the time. You'd lived with whatever that thing was, whether it was a decision or just a, a, a difficult thing. And you allowed him to do that. You allowed him to speak that into your heart and into your soul. Rather than allowing time to live, with the possibility that God may or may not want him to attack the Philistines, Saul kind of lashes out at God. He's, he says, why have you not answered me, God? And so then he, he casts lots. And, and we could talk a lot about casting lots and what all that means. But, but he casts lots between himself to find out what the problem was. And, and as a result, he almost has his son Jonathan killed because he ate the honey, Right? You don't need God to know it's a bad idea to kill your son, okay? You don't need to, to, to ask God about that. That's one of those things you just should get right if you're walking with God and you know what God wants. Casting lots, I mean, this, this was a bad idea because it was used in the Old Testament to help make decisions sometimes. But it was never used as something to force God to tell you something. God, tell me this right now, you know, paper, rock, scissor. That's not what it was used for. And interestingly, on a side note, when you get into the New Testament, it's not even mentioned after the Holy Spirit comes. It's when your relationship with God is, is guided by this faithfulness. You guard against just regrettable decisions that God would not have any part of you making. You consider what God wants. You consider His priorities. You try to relate to Him apart from sin. And here's the real question, though. I mean, I, I didn't put notes in the bulletin because I didn't want you scribbling all that down. Because here's... Here's the main point. Here's the main question. Is your idea of faithfulness, of faithfulness, excuse me, shaped by Jesus? And we have models in the Old Testament, and that's good. But, but at the end of the day, is your idea of faithfulness to God shaped by who we know God to be in Christ? Because faithfulness to God is more than just going to church. It's more than giving money, even giving a lot of money. I mean, the preacher wants you to do that. He's happy when you do that. It's more than that. It's more than wearing your Christian t-shirt. It's more than trying to sneak Jesus into all your conversations with people that don't go to church. It's not a bad thing to do, but faithfulness is more than that. It's saying in the same way that Jesus did to the Father when He was in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. Not because He knew, as we often say, well, I know God's got a reason for me for this, you know. And when I look back, I'm going to understand why I had to go through all that. 
You look at Jesus. I mean, the, the decision that, that ultimately happened following the garden resulted in his death. I mean, it didn't, it didn't work out just for him. It wasn't about him. It was about what God was doing through him. And ultimately, it is about him because he's going to be glorified for that. Faithfulness is shaped by Christ. Faithfulness rests in what Christ has done. Not anything that we have done or might could do. Now I have a quote, and, and you might find this quote kind of depressing. It's by a guy named Wendell Berry, and, and it's in a, in a book he wrote, a work of fiction called Jaber Crow. But he's talking about what he calls the quiet work of God's guidance. And, and uh, I, as someone that struggles with decisions sometimes, and whether or not God is at work or doing something, I, I find it encouraging, and it's already on the screen for you. It says, often, he admits through this character in this book, often I've not known where I was going until I was already there. I've had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me or I have gone to it mainly by way of mistakes or, or surprises. Often I have received better than I deserved. Often my famous hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I'm an ignorant pilgrim. Amen? Anybody else? Crossing a dark valley. And yet for a long time, looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I've been led. Make of that what you will. You see, the, the, the difficult, the great thing and the difficult thing about faithfulness is that it rests on faith. Because try as hard as you can, sin is going to influence at some point in your life your relationship with God. Whether it's your sin or someone else's. It's both probably happen, but it will. And you might do all the things that you think a good Christian is supposed to do. You might make sure all your desires that you think line up with things that, that God would want. And you might have the most sophisticated way of making the hard decisions. Or you might just shake a magic eight ball. I don't know. But you're going to make bad decisions. Uh, you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. But if your faith is what Christ has already done. As opposed to what you have done or might do. He'll guide you. Even if sometimes he does so quietly. This morning, if your faith is in how readily God talks to you or helps you make decisions or how well you think you do and getting all the check marks and doing what he wants you to do and avoiding sin, that's not really in Christ. In a minute, Brent's going to come and we're going to sing, I've Decided to Follow Jesus, a song we've sang, I don't know, probably thousands of times. And as we do, I, I want you... I want you to make doing so, make following Jesus the center of how you understand your faithfulness to God. That's what's important. Where's prayer? Let's pray together. God, we pray that, that you would influence our faithfulness and help us realize just how totally inadequate we are. And, and, and God... Give us, give us gratefulness for what you've made possible for coming down to us from the mountain, giving us your spirit. And Lord, help us to, to recognize that and, and see that even though we can't do it perfectly, we can, we can take up our cross. We can follow. We can seek your will above our own through your grace and through your strength. Help us to do that. Respond as you lead us in Jesus' name.